Welcome to this best of 2019 edition of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. You'll hear portions of lots of the interviews that we conducted this past year, starting with the interesting and funny story of how our First Lady, Susan Hutchinson, met her husband, Governor Asa Hutchinson. You ready? Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of flagandbanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Gray. Arkansas's First Lady, Miss Susan Hutchinson, was born in Atlanta, Georgia, the second of seven children. At a young age, she was smart and ambitious, having graduated valedictorian of her high school and having lofty goals of one day becoming a doctor. After attending college, Susan met a man from Arkansas, an ambitious man named Asa Hutchinson. So you met Asa in college. Yes. And love at first sight? I was taken with him. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Great smile, and he was not deterred with the usual romantic um, busting answers what that do you I mean gave. by that guys don't like to date smart girls oh that's true they're very intimidated and I was like man up come on <laughs> <laughs> I mean sooner or later you're gonna find out so I got tired um, nobody in high school asked me out really? a couple of guys at church yeah. Did you know he Very was going to be a politician? Was he already talking oh, about that? Oh, no. What did he want to be? What well, on our second date, he told me he had decided that, um, well, he hadn't quite decided. He knew he wasn't going to be an accountant. He'd done well with his accounting degree, his grades and everything. Um, but he had decided he wasn't going to do that. But through debate, he had to do research. And we were both in debate. That's significant there's a reason i mentioned mm-hmm. that um why was that important well our paths did not cross i'd never seen him before until he sat across the evening dinner table from me six weeks from graduation our last semester our last year never seen him before i'd heard his name i knew he was in debate because I happened to be the secretary of the Intramural Debate Association, and I knew when all the debates would happen and everything. So he's peppering me with all these questions. So, you know, like, what's your goal this semester, your last semester? You know, straight A's. Oh, what are you majoring in? Biology, minoring in chemistry. But he just kept smiling and asking me more questions. He wasn't put off by it. He wasn't put off by it at all. And I, I was really taken with that. Uh, I didn't smile too big, though. And then I, I was just I was just done with trying to find Mr. Perfect. Yeah. It just wasn't happening. Uh, so he, how did he, had he finally call you? No, that didn't happen either. This is the longest story <laughs> I've ever been in. <laughs> we can make a movie out of this, Carrie. So anyway, he, I just asked any and everybody mm-hmm. uh, who so knew how, him. So you, you, I looked at the schedule of the debates. Oh, and you and showed when they up were. for the debates. So I showed up for his debates. Uh, that's why debates are important. That's why debates are important. <laughs> <laughs> that took us a long time to get there, and I love that story. Susan Hutchinson, our first lady, from an interview here on Up In Your Business this past May. Also this summer, Hank Kelly listed the things necessary for a city to be great. And we have them all. My guest today is the well-known commercial real estate developer, Mr. Hank Kelly. For the past 35 years, Mr. Kelly has worn many hats as the CEO of Flake and Kelly Commercial Real Estate Firm in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. You read a book called Our Towns by James and Deborah Fallows, and I was at Rotary when you first became president, sitting out there eating my lunch. And you held that book up and you said, everybody needs to read this book. I love it. And this is what we're going to do while I'm president. And it has 11 signs for civic success, although you call it 10 and a half. Well, James Fallows called it 10 and a half. And there are 11, but 
I'll get into why it's a half All right. in just a minute. Let's start. Which one do you want to start with? I wrote them down in case you need help. Okay. Well, I've, I've got them right Okay, here. good. Um, first, people work together on practical local possibilities rather than allowing bitter disagreements about national politics to keep them apart. That's so important. So, that one was that one kind of surprised me. Well, it is critical, though. So if we get on opposite poles because one of us is red and one of us is blue. Right. And we can't go solve the school district issue. What good does that do if we're apart and not willing to work together to make our local place a better home? I'm it's, not sure if it's a symptom or a reason is the fact that you can't work together in your local home because you're Jewish and you're Muslim and you're Catholic is the fact that you can't work together in your home broaden out to to be become a national problem or is it or is it because you bring the national problem into your house I guess they're the same I'm afraid that we all spend too much time listening to echo conversations by certain brands of news and we don't take the time and I'm reflecting on myself we don't take the time to listen to a different point of view and a local view and, and to take and, care and of a local, local stuff. view but the importance of diversity and it's critical if you surround yourself with people that look like you and think like you you never grow You just hear the same conversations over and over and over. Which brings me to another one of the uh, 11, inclusive and open to attracting new types of people. So we're on a mission at Club 99, the Little Rock Rotary Club, to make our Rotary Club look like our community. And it's a mission. We have a separate committee that's a division of our recruiting committee that is the diversity committee. And the diversity committee is chaired by my friend, Dr. Ashwin Vibacher, who's an Indian man, a dear friend of mine. Uh, Our friendship goes beyond Rotary. We've traveled to India with him and his wife. We've gone to a family wedding in India. And if I had not experienced that, I wouldn't understand some of the diversity challenges that I faced internally. I also was lucky enough to go as a chaperone with UA Little Rock to Shanghai, to Xi'an, and to Beijing, and that opened my eyes. I'm a chaperone. I'm learning as much or more than the students are by the experience of interacting with the people. So if you don't have the ability to just spend all of your life traveling and meeting people, then it's just necessary to open your heart and your mind to someone that's different than you and live through them, live through their travel experiences, live through the experiences they have had as a Jewish person or as a Hindu or as a Christian or as an African-American. And don't limit your knowledge as a person to just what you know. And so it's just the basics of humanity to me. Simple. The more you're exposed to, the more you grow. There's um, nine more. You want me to pick it? Oh, uh, you can pick one or I'll, I'll hit the highlights of them. Hit it. So you can pick out the local patriots. Who are our heroes? Oh, yeah, that was a good one. Okay. So, so you know, Mayor Frank Scott is trying to lead this city right now and help us get our swagger back. That's part of his motto. I want to help him with that because swagger is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And our former president, Kenny Gibbs, Mm -hmm. he's got swagger. Oh, president of Rotary. (laughs) Yeah, Kenny Gibbs had swagger. He did. (laughs) Well, he was a boxer. Yeah, he was a boxer. you got to have a swagger to box. You sure do. So, but, But the point of that is be proud of where you live. Don't dwell on the negatives. Highlight the positives. Work to improve the negatives, but don't be ashamed of who you are. Don't be ashamed of where we live. I'm so proud to live here. I wouldn't live anywhere else. You're a cheerleader for here. 
you really are a city cheerleader. Thank you. And I think city pride is important. And I think people, and I think that's what Frank Scott's trying to do, is really bring up city pride. We had Ned Permy on who said that he had no idea. He came from... He was coming from Mobile. Mobile, Alabama. Mobile. And he came up here and said, I couldn't believe that Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas, had so much to offer. I fell in love with the place, and I left the beach. I can't believe I left the beach. So he bought a tanning bed, and he... <laughs> no but but you're right it's a wonderful place and we need to be proud of it and we need to toot our horn and not talk about Absolutely. the things it doesn't have so the other thing is um public private partnership is a term that's used all over the world it's all used especially uh, among municipal leaders but having a real public private partnership who would you say that is well it's a project so let's say that if you go to the gateway development where Bass Pro is. Okay. Okay. I, I 430 and I30. Okay. That was a public private partnership by virtue of the developer Tommy Hodges applying for and utilizing a TIF project to build some infrastructure and streets and sewer connections that allowed that development to get started. Now, look at what that looks like today compared to what it looked like 10 years ago and if you don't see the value of a little bit of investment from the public sector to make that happen then you're just blind would you call that project the tiff project tiff yeah a tiff project says basically if the city grants you the ability to do it you can take the difference between the taxes that are being collected on the property today and the taxes that would be collected on the property after the redevelopment was done and you can use part of that. The school district is not uh, exempt, meaning this, the portion of it that goes to the school district is exempt from being relieved. But if you take the difference between what was and what will be, and you use a portion of that to pay for the streets, the sewer, the sidewalks, et cetera, it stimulates the growth in that area. Yeah, that was a great addition. Uh, they have, um, I, was, I thought it was interesting that they had three conversations about schools a research university an innovative and unusual school and a reputable community college to fill the inequality gap and we had all three of them we have all three of them that's the beauty of this book is if you read the book and you compare the other cities and towns that he talks about and their assets and their challenges and you compare little rock to that we have the solution to nearly every one of his 10 and a half or 11 points. And the schools that we have available to us, including a variety. A good variety. Of, of, of both private, public schools at the high school level. And then you go to the college level and you've got UA Little Rock, which is a research university. That's one of the key ingredients. Yes, a research university brings new students, professors, smart people. It's akin to having a river or a harbor was once to a to a community. It's the flow of intelligent people. It's the flow of intelligent people. So then you have Pulaski Technical College, which is a fabulous two-year institution that prepares people to either go into workforce directly or go on and finish a four-year degree. It's the inequality gap for the people that can't do the four-year, that need to be working faster in two years. And it's a good one because there are some um, community colleges that are not very reputable, and ours is extremely reputable. And so you also have other community colleges that support the UA system that enter in and around Central Arkansas that can actually interact with ua little rock i thought this one was interesting which i've never thought of an innovative unusual school and if that's not the clinton school of public service i don't know what is or you look at the east m schools they're very innovative uh so the latest east m school is down on shall street right by heifer international and they're educating kids at a very high level at this point and so it's a great great system uh, our fellow rotarian mike poor is giving his heart and soul to this school district. And I, I believe he's got many choices of places he could be, and I'm thankful that he's here now. That's nice. And, of course, everyone knows this one, a great downtown. 
great downtown. We're so lucky in Little Rock relative to the size of our community. We have a 40-story building downtown that we're involved with. We also have the River Market area. We have Soma. We have so many entertainment areas to go to. Um, I was speaking to one of our fellow Rotarians that lives just on the other side of Soma, and he talked about how nice it is to leave his home, walk to a number of restaurants that are just within two or three blocks at most from um, his home, and people that live in 303rd River Market Tower regularly walk out of their condominiums, walk to restaurants like Samantha's, like Bruno's. Um, I love Flyway Brewery over in North Little Rock. It's just a fabulous setting, and it's just— yeah, the Argenta District in North Rock. The Argenta District is on fire. I know. You, that, uh, speaking of breweries, Craft Brewery was actually one of the 11 things. It's that the makes half. It it's the half. It's the half. It's the half. I thought you were going to say but, it was but, the Craft Brewery. James Fallows says, and I believe, it's a great indicator of the spirit of your community. So if you have breweries and distilleries, not that we're promoting you know, excessive drinking, but, but, but what they show is that there's enough support among the younger people that love to have fresh brew. Yeah, they go out and spend brew. money. Yeah. And, and, and that determinant, he says, is direct. Well, they also are the next people coming up. If you don't have the young people, your community is going to be that, dying. That's right. Uh, and then uh, uh, the last one it, that I think, well, no, the next to the last one is people know the civic story, which is like the land of opportunity, the natural state. So I understand you've got Ernie Dumas coming uh, in the future to uh -huh. talk to you. He was, of course, uh, a guest of ours at our Rotary Club. And the education of Ernie Dumas, I would just say to our the listeners book. out there, it's a fabulous book about Arkansas politics. And knowing your civic story, if you don't know anything else, go read Ernie's book. Uh, it's just the last hundred years of Arkansas politics told from someone. Ernie hadn't been doing it for a hundred years, but he was—he's close. Uh, he cl <laughs> Ernie, don't don't take that. Uh, the, the, he's he, probably listening. But for fifty years, uh, Ernie Dumas has been involved in the backstories and the back rooms of seeing what happened, and this book tells it all. And he's and, a great storyteller, and, and it 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 helps wrap up a great view of our civic history. Uh, it was really good. This is a great place to take a break. Up in your business with Carrie McCoy, a presentation of flagandbanner.com. 2019 was another terrific year for interesting guests, stimulating interviews, filled with unexpected and surprising revelations from all kinds of people that rarely sit down for one-hour conversations. 2020 promises to be another stellar year, too. In the month of January alone, we've already got Jim Guy Tucker scheduled. And you can hear Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy on all kinds of platforms, twice a week on local radio, wherever you like to listen to podcasts, the Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy YouTube channel, and in connection with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, now you can go to ArkansasOnline.com, click Listen, and find Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Thank you for listening, and make sure you stop by our store, located at 800 West 9th Street in downtown Little Rock. Open Monday through Friday, 8 to 5.30, and Saturdays from 10 to 4. Online at flagandbanner.com. Legendary journalist Ernie Dumas was a guest on Up In Your Business, and he reviewed his memories of all the governors who've held that office while Ernie's been writing. Winthrop Rockefeller. Winthrop Rockefeller. He's your most, favorite one, isn't he? In well, the in book. a way. He's the most unusual politician in the history of Arkansas, a successful politician. And, one and word. Perhaps, uh, I guess genuine. He was committed to doing something for Arkansas. It was a, became the passion of his life to resurrect uh, his kind of reputation because he's part of the Rockefeller clan. He had fled New York City in disgrace because he had he was a big he was a notorious drunk and playboy gambler he'd gambler he'd, he'd married bobo sears the the kind of flashy b-grade actress and then they'd had this divorce that was on the front page of all the tabloids and everything and he was a disgrace to the whole rockefeller family that's why he came to arkansas and he came to arkansas to escape all of that and the notoriety after his divorce and here he discovered uh, his mission in life, which was to take this 
poor state and transform it into a modern state. Uh, so that was his dream, and so he ran for office and amazingly, with the help of a great fortune, of course, gets elected and then felt like in, in the four years he was governor that he had failed, and so he, he died in, I think, a very unhappy and bitter man. Uh, he didn't live very long, did he? He lived about two years after his defeat and got cancer and, uh, and died. Uh, you have a great story about him because of his drinking. Oh, yes. All right. Well, that was the story I told because, and as, as a number of these stories in the book are, are stories that, that I revealed that I was a part of. And mm-hmm. as a reporter, you're never supposed to be part of the story, and you try not to be. But there were several instances when I became uh, a, a part of the story. This one that I think that you're referring to is, uh, you know, he was notorious for drinking. That was his reputation. And he supposedly, there were rumors going around that he had this vast trove of pornography up on Pettigene Mountain. And that he had all this liquor, these fancy liqueurs and whiskeys from all over the world up there. Uh, there were all kind of rumors like that spread about uh, Winthrop Rockefeller. But you know, we in Arkansas, this was a this was a, a Southern Bible Belt state, and and drinking was not a uh, was not an acceptable thing in much of the state. Uh, and you couldn't sell alcohol in much of the state, and particularly no, in the governor's mansion. People didn't expect the governor would not be drinking in the governor's mansion, at least since Jeff Davis was governor at the turn of the century, and he was a notorious drunk, and and people loved him for drinking, and so he was called himself a uh, he said there were there were pint Baptists and court Baptists, and he was a court Baptist. <laughs> and then the, and then the, and then the Baptist Church expelled him. So anyway, so Rockefeller, uh, he, had, he this is at the end of his first term, and he's running for a second term in 1968, and uh, against a very formidable Democratic candidate, Marion Crank, who was the Speaker of the House of Representatives and a very accomplished man, and backed by the Stevens interests and so forth. So. It was going to be a very, very tough race for him, and because he'd been so far kind of unsuccessful in getting anything done, and had kind of championed civil rights, so he was in supposedly in deep trouble. And it was early in the morning; he was making a speech. Well, that's right. And so he called a special session of the legislature in the summer of 1968. The election is coming up in November, and he calls a special session of the legislature to get some things done. He's got a, a, a prison reform bill. Uh, and he wants to pass to, to try to transform this this corrupt uh, prison system. So at special legislative sessions, you know, typically they all the senators and the House members all gather in the House of Representatives, usually at 10 o'clock in the morning, at the first day of the session. And the governor comes before him and addresses the session and lays out his program, what he wants him to pass. So Rockefeller addresses the legislative session, and he was not a good speaker. He, he was dyslexic, and he had to have his speeches written out so he could, in great huge letters, so he could read it easily. And he often slurred a few words and stopped and had to start over again and so forth. And so I'm covering it for the Gazette. I go up to Senator Clarence Bell of Parkin, and so I ask the, uh, Senator Bell about the, the governor's speech, and, uh, and he says, well, I thought he had two or three shots too many before he came here this morning. Now, this is morning. You don't drink in the morning, do you? You know, I write it down on my notepad. And uh, Senator Richard Earl Griffin from Crossett is standing nearby, and he echoed that, said, yeah, people should be able to watch that speech. It'd be a, it'd be a shame to their governor. A little afterward, I go down to the governor's office to ask for the governor Rockefeller's comment about it, and see whether he had been drinking that morning. I go into the front door of the governor's office, and as I'm going into the governor's office, Bill Connolly, his press secretary, is coming out of his office. And my, my notepad is in my hip pocket. And so we meet in the doorway, and I said, Bill, I need, to see, uh, I need to see the governor. And he said, what about? Senator Bell said he had two or three shots too many before he addressed the legislature this morning. He said, Ernie, I was with him all morning, and he, and he had one drink. But the governor's going up, he's going up to Pettigene. He won't be back until this evening. So then I write a story. And it's the next day, the front page of the Gazette. Of course, the lead story of his governor's speech and the big program that he'd laid out. And down at the bottom of the page under three-column headline, and I can still see it, 
Senator Bell says WR, that's what it initially Winter used in headline, says WR had, quote, two hyphen, three drinks too many. AIDS has had only one. <laughs> so Bill Conley's account later, Bill was, he was at the house the next morning, and he's still in bed early in the morning, and he gets a call. It's from Tom Isley, who was executive secretary to the governor. Isley says, Conley, write a letter of resignation and be at the mansion at 9 o'clock or some such time. Wanted Conley to resign yeah. from being yeah. Winthrop's Pre- press secretary. Press secretary, because that happened. Okay. Yes, yeah, so, so, so Conley said, why? And he said, have you read the Gazette this morning? And he said, no, I haven't. He said, get the Gazette and read the front page and write a letter of resignation and be at the mansion. So Conley goes out, picks up the paper, and there he sees that story on the front page, and he just heart sinks. So he sits down and writes a little two or three sentence letter of resignation and walks, goes out, drives out to the governor's mansion. And when he gets out there, they were all sitting in the living room. Rockefeller's not there. He's back in his bed. He's still asleep. And so they sit there and just chew on poor old Connolly for an hour. How could you do such a thing? How could you write such a thing? You know, you've, you've defeated him now. He's, he's going to be beaten because of this thing. The people of Arkansas, the governor's drinking at the mansion. And he said, well, Dumas didn't have his, he didn't have a notepad. I didn't know he was going to quote me. And John Ward supposedly said, well, Conley, that's, he's a reporter. That's what reporters do. They quote you. Somebody comes in and says, the governor is awake. So they all troop back to the bedroom, and, and, and Rockefeller's sitting there on the edge of the bed in his pajamas, you know, scratching his head. And, and he says, what the hell are you guys doing in here? Isley goes over and grabs the letter out of uh, Conley's hand, takes it over and hands it to Rockefeller. And Rockefeller puts his glasses on and reads it, and he said, why is Conley resigning? Isley goes and gets the, the Gazette, and he's got it folded back to that little thing about my little story at the bottom of the page. Rockefeller put, looks at it again, reads a little bit, and then he starts laughing. And he said, hell, I'm not going to fire, uh, fire Conley for lying for me. He knows I had five drinks if I had one. Now get the hell out of here. i gotta, I got to get dressed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. I love that story. Hell, well, I'm not going to fire him for saying I had one when I had five. That's a good job. When Sophia Saeed was a guest on the program, she explained a concept foreign to most of us in the United States, arranged marriage. You were born in Pakistan, and uh, you call yourself a liberal Muslim. I'm a Muslim, yes. I Yes, people call me liberal Muslim. Mm-hmm. You, your father taught you to drive? Yes, my father taught me to drive. He's very proud of me. And you were uh, very good in school and thought because your father was pretty liberal that you would follow like your follow in um, the footsteps of other family members and go to America get, to get educated. But he kind of planned something different. <laughs> yes, I saw. So that's where the gender uh, roles differed in our family and in most of the families. Like I did see all my uncles and many male members of the family coming to U.S. for their higher education. So I aspire to do the same. But um, back then, at least, it was only male members of the family, not females, not girls or women. But you did go to college. I did go to college in Pakistan. But only the males got to come to America to get educated. Yes. And you thought that would happen to you. But instead, your father did what? Instead, he got me married. He arranged my marriage. That is fascinating (laughs) to me. Some Americans cannot understand the idea of an arranged marriage. Really? Well, that's that's the foundation of our society, one of the foundations of the society. It's a very common phenomenon. I know. Tell us about how it happened and how it came to be and why you like it, why it's acceptable. I've had other friends who've had arranged marriages, and I've heard what they've had to say about it. Uh, I think our listeners would love to hear what, how it happened. And so you see, marriage is not a union of just two people. It's it's coming together of two families who are going to be interacting a lot with each other and raising the next generation of kids together. So it's important that families get along as well. So the way it happened in my case, which is true for many, many, many Pakistanis, if not most, most is that... Uh, my family started looking for a suitable groom for me, and they searched, like all the other fam- many other families are searching too, uh, in, uh, and they were looking for a family which is similar to their own background. 
and a family which has to offer what I wanted. They knew what their daughter wanted. They knew my personality. They knew what my goals and aspirations in life are. So they were looking for a groom who is able to fulfill what I was looking for. I wanted somebody who's highly educated, who would respect a strong and independent woman, who would let me study after my marriage, and who is going to the United States because I wanted to pursue higher education in the United States. So lots of proposals would come, and me and my parents would discuss them together, things that would work for them or things they would reject and things that I would reject. But eventually, and very soon, we found this proposal, which we all agreed upon because it has to offer the things that we both were looking for, me and my parents. So I said yes, and... uh, my husband was in uh, England at that time. He was doing his master's, so I never got to meet with him or visit with him. Um, he came uh, to Pakistan a couple of days before we got married. So, yeah, but uh, we're still married, heavily married, actually, and um, it works great. Did they ask him what he wanted, and he said, I want uh, all the all the same things I guess you just mentioned? I am sure his family was looking for what their son likes in a girl and the things that he hopes for in a girl. And that's why the whole institution of arranged marriage works because, you know, it's not based on love because you can fall in and out of love. It's based on personalities. It's based on a level of commitment and responsibility. And when you make that commitment towards each other, the bride and the groom and the families, then do you do your best to uh, work hard in it and... Uh, make it a success and who wants anything who wants it who wants things better for you to be the best they can be than your parents and who knows you better than anybody else than your parents that's true and they are experienced in the institution of marriage as well I mean I did not know before getting married that what are the things which will become issues after five six ten years of marriage you know dishwashing or laundry we don't even think about those things when we think about marriage we think about love but when parents are thinking they're putting thinking about all the practical things as well so yeah and plus it's a joint decision I mean people have this misconception that arranged marriage means your parents are going to pick somebody for you and get you off to marriage it's not like that I mean you know educated families they talk to each other and uh, they decide together how do they correspond with each other through emails and pictures back and forth I mean how do the family the parents I assume oh, the parents, arrange I thought, yes how do the parents arrange it they met so we are distant distant family relatives so they met with each other several times and they communicated with each other through common um, relatives and then they go so visit each other then they visited then, each other they visited me did, did you meet your husband's um, mother and father before you met and him? ancestors and aunt. All of yes. them before you met your husband. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm sorry, <laughs> Americans, but I, I would love to pick all of my children's um, <laughs> life mates. And, oh, I, and, and, when I, right, and when I look back on it, I think maybe my parents could have picked a good one for me also because, you know, who wants better for you than them? That's a, that's fascinating. So I have to ask. I know I know your religion and is modest and stuff, but you talk about the love. I mean, you've got to be scared. You've never met this guy before. Do you consummate on the first day you met? I mean, that seems kind of that'd be kind of weird. Well, it depends. Mostly, the the difference between love marriage and arranged marriage is that in arranged marriage you fall in love after you get married. So you start getting to know each other. You start the whole process of courtship happens after you get married. That makes me feel a lot better because I always worry about these young girls. So okay, you don't just have to go home and the guy goes, "All right, take your clothes off. You're married now." That would make that makes me really uncomfortable. But it's not that way. It's it's the beginning of a courtship. It's the beginning of a beautiful relationship. Yes, that's true. And in my case, it was different because we were living in two different continents. But nowadays, like, you know, my daughter is turning 20 and I was with her yesterday and I'm also always asking her, so shall I start looking for proposals for you? Shall I start sending boys your way? So they do have a chance to get to know each other even before they get married. It's just that the family is helping you find the right is she gonna let boy you? and the fi- right family. Well, she was born in America, right? Yeah, but... Uh, is, she gonna, is she okay with that? 
as of now yes i mean Love you know it. it's easier to find uh, meet with people when your family is helping you connect with so many people out there more resources to find the right guy Love it. How old's your daughter? 20. How old were you when you got married? 21. Time's growing short for her. <laughs> With the big change this year of the Democrat Gazette being delivered in a digital form, we talked a little bit about newspapers with everybody from Joe Fox at Community Bakery to Lance Turner to even Steve Landers. At the tender age of just five years old, Steve walked to the newspaper office and with his allowance of three cents, bought newspapers and then standing on the street corner, he resold them for five cents. I can't wait to learn more as we talk to the well-known and charismatic CEO of Steve Landers Auto Group, Mr. Steve Landers. Welcome, Steve. Yes, thank you, Gary. Is that story true about the five cents selling newspapers? It is true. It, it, you missed the part about my allowance was three cents. I, I, I think I didn't have any allowance. I just mustered up a couple of dollars and I'd go up there and buy papers for three cents a piece. And then I'd sell them for five cents a piece. A lot of times they would give me a dime. <laughs> We are a lot alike. alike yes. Yeah, we are. I am fascinated by you. And really, everybody is fascinated by you. Every time I told somebody you were coming on, they're like, really, really? You're like a movie star in town. Well, I don't know if I'm a movie star. I, um, I just know I'm an old country boy from Sling County that's worked <laughs> awful hard in my life. I'd go up there, you know, it's like... 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon, and I'd stay out on the corner right by our house about two blocks over. I'd stay out there till about 7.30. When my mother knew where I was at, nobody would throw you in the car and steal you back then. You yeah. know I mean? Nobody would run off with you. <laughs> so I would just stand on the corner and holler courier, and I'd sell those papers, and I'd make three or four cents a piece, and sometimes seven cents, somebody give me a dime. And uh, I'd make a couple of dollars a week. I'd take that couple of dollars and buy Cokes and ice cream and stuff that I wanted, mm -hmm. I would buy with my own money. But the uh, the uh, back then you could buy a Baby Ruth about a foot long for a nickel and a six, <laughs> 16 ounce Pepsi for a nickel. <laughs> so you were rich. So I was. I had a lot of money with three or four dollars in my pocket. That's you know, exactly so. right. My guest today is Mr. Lance Turner, online editor of Arkansas Business Publishing Group of Little Rock, Arkansas. In 1999, Lance began working for Arkansas Business as a reporter. It wasn't long before he was recognized as a star. His intellect and willingness to work hard garnered him a promotion to overseer of all web content for the many magazines and newspapers of said publishing group, some of which are Arkansas Business Magazine, Little Rock Soiree, Little Rock Family, Arkansas Bride, and Greenhead. What Amazon. do you think about your industry as a whole? In terms of where it's going, well, that's the question, right? I mean, that's. I, I mean, look I, at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette; they've gone. Yeah, they're fantastic? going digital. I think yeah. it's great. So, for our listeners that don't know what we're talking about, our main uh, newspaper here in really Arkansas, all of Arkansas, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Do you think they're a competitor of yours? They can be. Yeah. Uh, they have Walter Husman, the owner, has mm -hmm. decided to provide eleven million dollars in iPads to the all the subscribers in the state of Arkansas. I think that's the photo of the year was Walter Hussman standing in the, in the warehouse with all the iPads and boxes behind him. I think that was fantastic. That was a great image. And he's, got, he's making a commitment to going, to taking the paper digital. Mm -hmm. The only print you're going to get is on Sundays. Yeah. At first I thought, how am I going to share the paper with my husband? Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, I have lots of iPads and stuff in the house. Mm -hmm. They tested it in um, Blyville. And I read in the paper that 30%, they expect 30% of people to drop off. It's going to be interesting. And, and watching those renewals will be interesting, too. Um, it's one thing to get those <coughs> subscribers. It's another thing to, to keep them. And, that, of course, that's always the game in this business anyway is the churn of subscribers. And we were talking about that at the office today. What? Uh, in terms of digital subscribers. Uh, there was a report about the Los Angeles Times and how it's trying to, like everybody else, make this digital transition. And so its digital subscriber numbers came out and it was what they were way below what they should have been. And they're dealing with a lot of issues of churn. And they signed up X number, number of people and then X number of those people didn't renew. And so they got to figure out, well, what are we doing or not doing to keep those subscribers? And so there's this whole strategy that, that you've got to employ that people are still trying to figure out in terms of how to you know, reduce churn and, and keep subscribers and and um, kind of the kind of communication you need to do to, to subscribers and what you need to give subscribers and just that, that whole thing is an that whole thing is an art and a science. 
and um it'll be fun to watch so do you think you'll ever go digital uh, maybe completely digital maybe maybe I, I don't know i think right now though we we really um i mean we see a lot of future in print and we're doing a lot of we've we've seen growth in print and we're, we've added um we've added titles in the past few years and um i agree and yeah and and we're um I'm trying to think. I'm trying to say this the correct way. If my publisher Mitch Bettis was here, he's got a great spiel on all this and, and can tell you about it. Um, but we've the, the goal for us is to diversify our sources of revenue, and so we've got we've got this slice that's print and this slice that's subscription and this slice that's events and this slice that's something else. And we have a web development company in our in our office as well, and so that's another slice. And so. You know the proportions are going to change, but we want the the pie to get the pie itself to get bigger. The the entire pie. It's and an so, enterprise of several businesses under one. It is. Roof. It is. Yeah. And so a lot of publishers are having to having to think in those terms. Creative. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You do. You got to be creative and 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 not maybe you know things that you used to say no to. Well, maybe you should think about them now. I think people are tired of spam. I think people are ready to touch and hold stuff. Stuff that was. That's just my opinion. We've gone back to uh, snail mail advertising. Wow. Yeah. We, we, we're getting great results out of it. And, mm-hmm. it's, and oddly enough, it's cheaper than Google AdWords. Wow. Google AdWords are expensive these days. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not on the business side of our operation, obviously. But it's interesting times. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody's trying to figure it out. And we are all very proud and rooting for Walter Hussman. I mean, we, we, mm-hmm. we need the Democrat Gazette. To be in Arkansas, I mean, we need it to to do the good work that it's doing. You need a strong daily paper in your market to make your democracy work. You you just need it, and so um, I hope it works out for them. I really do. Yes, I do too. My guest today is probably the most educated restaurant tour I've ever known. Mr. Joe Fox, owner of Community Bakery in Little Rock, Arkansas, also has a degree in engineering technology economics, and an MBA from Harvard. Joe's career story is not like any I've ever heard. From what I can tell, he did not have a burning desire to cook, serve, or commune with others. His inspiration for starting his coffee shop was simply to create a place where he could sit and read the Sunday New York Times. This creative and risky business venture to to open an upscale coffee shop on Main Street in Little Rock's distressed downtown neighborhood has been hugely successful. So much so that Fox has since opened another community bakery in West Little Rock. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the intelligent creative businessman and a restaurateur, Mr. Joe Fox. Thank you, Carrie. Who is Joe Fox? Uh, I'd have to think about that for a while before I could answer. I'm not sure. There's an irony to the fact that uh, at this point in my life, I'm selling donuts and newspapers, and I I did that when I was a kid. (laughs) You did? You you grew up in Missouri? Grew up in St. Louis, uh, sold newspapers on the street corner. uh, uh, the day Kennedy was shot, I was out there selling uh, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch uh, just a few doors, a block from my house. And I remember, uh, you know, uh, calling out the way we used to hear in the TV shows at that time. I said they actually issued an extra edition that day. And, and that was, St. Louis Post-Dispatch was an afternoon newspaper and it had a two-star edition, a three-star edition. But on the day that uh, the assassination occurred, they put out an extra edition. And sure enough, it said extra up in the upper right-hand corner of the uh, newspaper. And I was out there saying, extra, extra, read all about it. Kennedy assassinated in Dallas. Anyway, I was selling newspapers and I'm selling the New, uh, New York Times and Wall Street Journal still today. Back in a minute with more on our best of 2019 edition of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Listen to all UIYB past and present interviews by going to flagandbanner.com and clicking on radio show. Or subscribe to our podcasts wherever you like to listen by searching Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Also, you may simply like flagandbanner.com's Facebook page to watch our live stream and receive timely notifications of upcoming guests. Back with our best of 2019 edition of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. If you've had an opportunity to see It's a Wonderful Life at the Arkansas Rep this holiday season, you might be interested in some of the conversation we had with Will Trice, the brand new director at the Rep. Leaving New York had to be hard. You were talking about, no, no. Uh, I was. You had such an accomplished career there. Yeah, um, and uh, I was there for 15 years. 
Um, and I, I did, you know, particularly in those last 10 when I was working in producing, uh, were great. Um, but I think also you, you accomplish, you know, one of your life long dreams and then you go, okay, well now what? Um, and do you want to just kind of keep doing that again and again? Um, or do you just want to do something different? Do you want to live somewhere different? Do you want to have a different kind of quality of life and just a different kind of experience? You had nearly 30 productions on Broadway and were nominated and, and won three Tony Awards. How do you find out when you're nominated for Tony, Tony Award? Do they call you? they send you an email? It's they a, text there's you? a press conference. You sit happens. there and watch the press conference. Yeah. You're just sitting. You don't know before that happens. Nope. And so, what did you do? Like wet your pants when they name your name? The, the, the first time. Well, I mean, they don't. They don't name my name. Uh, I they mean, said I, the play. I, I was a. I, I, I won those in the context of producing, so that you, it's it's a it takes a village, uh, but um, so it's it's really the show that wins the Tony and and what the, was the show? Um, so my first one was for uh, the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, uh, and then for uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and then All the Way. Uh, which was about LBJ with uh, Brian Cranston. So you're sitting in the audience. So okay, that's how you find out. You're sitting in the audience. They or you're it. watching it, or you, or actually, you just you can also just wait for the the blogs to update. And and your friend and all of you that how many producers are on a play? Uh, it varies dramatically, uh, and there's kind of different meanings to producing. Mm. What um, was your meaning? Uh, I was. Uh, I, I was a kind of the associate lead producer on all of those. I was the junior partner in a lead producing office. Um, so we are the uh, we would be the ones that originate the projects. Uh, we literally form LLCs for for each show. We get the rights to the to the material. We hire artists. We hire management. We hire accountants. We hire advertising agencies. Then we go about and raise the capital. And then you get the actors. And yeah, we do, yeah we do the, the last major thing casting. is to get the actors. The well, cast. actually, not it's it's often it's often one of the first things. You're not going to go forward unless you have they know who's got an, the name unless on you it. have a star often. Uh, and then we will raise the capital, and so um, so there's a there's producing that is is a little less it's a little more passive sort of participation in the kind of day to day management of the of the show, but you're also you're also a producer. You're also sort of making it happen. Yeah. But it's a, it's a little less passive. So when you're in one of the lead producers, we're literally like all day, every day, like managing the show. But you don't go out there and say stage left, go to the right. You don't you no, don't you no. don't tell the actors where to go. No, we're uh, you are we're, literally we're, we're desk produced. jockeys. Yeah. Yes. Uh, when was the last time the rep raised their ticket price? Well, when I came. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know before that. Uh, Thank, uh, probably never. We raised certain prices and we lowered other prices to try to do what you do with pricing, which is to encourage good buying patterns. If your cost of goods are going up, your salaries are going up, mm -hmm. your cost of doing business is going up, how can you not raise prices every year to keep up with that? You can't go to the movie theater for the price that you can go to the rep and see a live performance. That's right. Uh, and. But but I would say you know kind of the definition of pricing strategy, it, it can never be cost based. Um, if we actually priced our tickets at, at what it costs to put it on, they'd be I don't know hundred fifty two hundred a yeah. ticket. Um, right. They'd be like what they are in New York, which are which are for profit theater ventures, right? Like, Why can't that's what you do I was that? doing. Well, because what pricing really is is market based. It's what the market will 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 shoulder and and how many people here would would come would be able to come um i mean even our prices the way they are now are not accessible to everyone uh but um i think even your sort of average entertainment buyer here isn't going to spend that kind of money to go to the theater i think everybody in town we have like seven theaters in town it's kind of crazy how many theaters there yeah. are um but everybody in town sets their theater prices around what the rep sets their theater prices and it's hurting them yeah. It, whatever your price is, that's what everybody else is going to set it at. To me, we should have a long conversation after this show to talk about why can't you have a $100 ticket price and make it very elitist and then give tickets away? That's a, you know, that is a, that's a, that's a way to approach it. Um, but I think what, what happens instead and what kind of the traditional way of approaching it is, is you, you, you sort of, 
set your average ticket price at a at a point that you you know you think that the the market will allow, uh, and you make up for the the difference in the cost with contributions. With contributions. And uh, I think for a a healthy um, institutional theater like um, like the Rep to run, uh, it's about a 50-50 split. That's what I was gonna I was gonna ask you that. So it's fifty percent of your income comes comes from should should come from ticket sales, and fifty percent of your income should come from private donations. And this is very these are very general mm-hmm. kind of rules of thumb. So um, concession, and, and every 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 theater's different, every market's different. But concession doesn't do anything. We do a little bit, um, and uh, I think there's kind of actually room to grow there, but um, but it's on the margin. Cliff Baker, is this his vision? Who started in 1976? Yeah. yeah, is, is this his vision? What's his vision? Are you? Do you, he, you got to speak with him before he passed this year. Sure. So what? What was his vision? Uh, for the for the theater in general, mm-hmm. um, I think it was to have quality, professional, vibrant, engaging theater year round what's the name of the genre that you're th- is it is it a professional is it amateur is it we are we are professional it's a professional theater. Um, is it the only professional theater in the state of arkansas besides n- the walton art center maybe no no that's not um, a and they're actually you could you know so different definitions of professional um i mean you know there are if you pay anyone anything you could you could say that it's sort of a professional theater but uh we are a, another way you could look at it is we are a union house. Um, theater is a very union-driven industry, uh, and there are three of those that are sort of kind of big union theaters. Um, that uh, Argen- actually four. Argenta. Uh, no, Argenta is a community theater. Okay. Um, and I, I think they do pay certain uh, a certain amount. You met James Earl Jones. Yes. Tell me. Oh yeah, I mean, is he he's, just he's, awesome? he's amazing. He's he's everything you. When he walks in a room, is it just big? Is it just so? He's very tall and big, and uh, very everything's very deliberate. Oh with really? What he does even yes. in real life? Yeah, uh, but he's an absolutely lovely man with an absolutely lovely family. What about Candace Bergen? Oh, she was amazing. I I, I didn't really interact a ton with her. Um, but I got kind of starstruck every time I was in a room with her. But she's very, she's she's incredibly intelligent and very she, and incredibly classy. And you know Al Pacino. Uh, very shy, uh, very very nice. He's very kind of has a very kind of meek persona and very very quiet. And then the last one I got to ask you about Angela Lansbury. Like the dame. Just the dame. Class. Total class and so smart. Well, you've got to be smart to memorize the lines. Yeah. I can't even memorize a 30-second commercial. I have to have him stand over there with a cue card so I can read it. It's 30 seconds. How can you do (laughs) every night for two hours? Eight shows a week. The brand new man behind the repertory theater. Next week, another edition of the Best of 2019 on Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal, to help you live the American dream.